And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today's August 25th. It's TGIF. And it's the 237th day of the year. 128 days remain till this year is over with. Since you all asked for holidays and observances, it's National Banana Split Day, Day of Sangan, Kiss and Make Up Day, National Park Service Founders Day, National Secondhand Wardrobe Day, National Whiskey Sour Day, and Uruguay Independence Day. In the year 19, the Roman general Germanicus dies near Antioch. He was convinced that the mysterious illness that ended in his death was a result of poisoning by the Syrian governor, Gnaeus Calpurnius Piso. He ordered to leave the province, and it may well have been. 766, Emperor Constantine V humiliates 19 high-ranking officials after discovering a plot against him. He executes the leaders, Constantine Padopagoras and his brother Strategios. 1248, the Dutch city of Oman receives city rights and fortification rights from Otto III, the Archbishop of Utrecht. Back in those days, he who God appointed to be a leader had all power. 1258, Regent George Bozoan and his brother are killed during a coup headed by the aristocratic faction under Michael VIII, Palaiagos, paving the way for its leader to ultimately usurp the throne of the Empire of Nicaea. 1270, Philip III, although suffering from dys- dysentery, becomes king of France following the death of his father, Louis IX, during the Eighth Crusade. His uncle, Charles I of Naples, is forced to begin peace negotiations with Muhammad uh, I al-Mustansir, the half-sid sultan of Tunis. 1537, the Honorable Artillery Company, the oldest surviving regiment in the British Army and the second most senior is formed. 1543, Antonio Mata and a few companions become the first Europeans to visit Japan. 1580, War of the Portuguese Succession, Spanish victory at the Battle of Alcantara brings about the the Iberian Union. 1609, Galileo Galilei demonstrates his first telescope to Venetian lawmakers. 1630, Portuguese forces are defeated by the Kingdom of Candy at the Battle of Rendinawala in Sri Lanka. 1758, Seven Years' War, Frederick II of Prussia defeats the Russian army at the Battle of Zorndorf. Uh, 1814, during the War of 1812, on the second day of the burning of Washington, British troops torched the Library of Congress, United States Treasury, Department of War, and other public buildings. 1823, American fur trapper Hugh Glass is mauled by a grizzly bear while on an expedition to South Dakota. Can't trust them grizzlies. 1825, the 33 Orientals declared the independence of Uruguay from Brazil. Those that are not familiar with the 33 Orientals, it was a revolutionary group led by Juan Antonio Lavalleja and Manuel Uribe against the Empire of Brazil. Their actions culminated in the foundation of modern Uruguay. 
became known by the name of the um, Trinenta y Tres Orientales. When in 1825 they began an insurrection for the independence of Oriental Province, a historical territory encompassing modern Uruguay and part of modern Brazilian Rio Grande do Sul state from uh, Brazilian control. They were also known as the 33 Immortals. eighteen thirty the Belgian Revolution begins. eighteen thirty five the first Great Moon Hopes articles published New York Sun announcing the discovery of life and civilization on the moon. Well they've always said there was a man on the moon. I don't know what the issue is. eighteen seventy five Captain Matthew Webb becomes the first person swim across English Channel, traveling from Dover, England to Calais, France in twenty one hours and forty five minutes. 1883, France and Vietnam signed the Treaty of Hue, recognized the French protectorate over Annam and Tonkin. 1894, Kurosato Shiosaburo discovers an infectious agent of the bubonic plague and publishes a finding in The Lancet. 1904, Russo-Japanese War, Battle of Lusoyang begins. 1912, the Kuomintang is founded for the first time in Peking. The um, the Kuomintang, also referred to as the Nationalist Party of China, well, the Chinese Nationalist Party is a major political party in the Republic of China. Initially on the Chinese mainland, and then moved to Taiwan in 1949. It was a sole ruling party in China during the Republican era of 1928 to 1949. The uh, party retreated from the uh, mainland to Taiwan, December seventh, nineteen forty-nine, following its defeat in the Chinese Civil War. Alrighty, uh, nineteen fourteen, World War One. Japan declares war on Austria-Hungary. Nineteen fourteen, World War One. Library at the Catholic University of Louvain is completely destroyed by the German army. Hundreds of thousands of irreplaceable volumes of Gothic and Renaissance manuscripts are lost. 1916, U.S. National Park Service is created. 1920, Polish-Soviet War, Battle of Warsaw, which began August 13th, ends with the Red Army's defeat. 1933, the Dixie earthquake strikes uh, Mao County, Sichuan, China, that kills 9,000 people. 1939, Irish Republican Army carries out the 1939 Coventry bombing in which five civilians are killed. 1939, UK and Poland form a military alliance in which the UK promises to defend Poland in case of invasion by a foreign power. 1940, World War II, the first bombing of Berlin by the British Royal Air Force. 1941, World War II, Anglo-Soviet invasion of Iran. UK and the Soviet Union jointly staged an invasion of the imperial state of Iran. 1942, World War II. Second day of the Battle of the Eastern Solomons. Japanese naval transport convoy heads towards uh, Guadalcanal is turned back by an Allied air attack. 1942, World War II. Battle of Milna Bay. Japanese Marines assault Allied airfields on the Milna Bay, New Guinea, initiating the Battle of uh, Milna Bay. 
1944, World War II, Paris is liberated by the Allies. This day in 1945, 10 days after World War II ends with Japan announcing its surrender, armed supporters of the Chinese Communist Party kill U.S. intelligence officer John Birch, regarded by some of the American right as the first victim of the Cold War. 1945, the August Revolution ends as uh, Emperor Bao Dai abdicates, ending the Nguyen Dynasty. 1948, the House Un-American Activities Committee holds first-ever televised congressional hearings. <coughs> um, it was referred to as Confrontation Day between Whitmer, Whitaker Chambers and Alger Hiss. 1950, to avert a threatened strike during the Korean War, President Truman orders Secretary of the Army Frank Pace to seize control of the nation's railroads. 1958, the world's first publicly marketed instant noodles chicken ramen are introduced by Taiwanese-Japanese businessman Momofuku Ando. 1960, the games of the 17th Olympiad commence in Rome, Italy. 1961, President Janio Quadros of Brazil resigns after just seven months in power, initiating a political crisis that culminates in a military coup in 1964. 1967, George Lincoln Rockwell, founder of the American Nazi Party, is assassinated by a former member of the group. Uh, actually, that's not exactly true. CIA was involved in that. I've got a uh, tape that's uh, basically two hours of a former CIA contract agent discussing not only the Kennedy assassination, which he was involved in, the cleanup, but several other... Uh, Instances of um, the CIA flexing his muscle. 1980s, Zimbabwe joins the United Nations. 1981, Voyager 2 spacecraft makes its closest approach to Saturn. 1985, Bar Harbor Airlines Flight 1808 crashes near Auburn, Maine, killing all eight people on board, including peace activist and child activist Samantha Smith. 1989, Voyager 2 spacecraft makes its closest approach to Neptune, the last planet in the solar system at the time, due to Pluto being within Neptune's orbit from 1979 to 1999. 1989, Pakistan International Airlines Flight 404, carrying 54 people, disappears over the Himalayas after takeoff from Gogut Airport in Pakistan. Aircraft was never found. <laughs> 1991, Belarus gains its independence from the Soviet Union. Also in 1999, I'm sorry, 1991, Battle of Vukovar begins, an 87-day siege of Vukovar by the Yugoslav People's Army, supported by various Serb paramilitary forces between August and November of 91 during the Croatian War of Independence. Uh, 1991 saw Linus Torvalds announce the first version of what will become Linux. 1997, Egon Krenz, the former East German leader, is convicted of a shoot-to-kill policy at the Berlin Wall. 2001, American singer Ayaya and several members of her record company are killed as her overloaded aircraft crashes shortly after takeoff from Marsh Harbor Airport in the Bahamas. 2003, NASA successfully launches the Spitzer Space Telescope into space. 2005, Hurricane Katrina makes landfall in Florida. 
2006, former Prime Minister of Ukraine Pavlo Lazarenko was sentenced to nine years imprisonment for money laundering, wire fraud, and extortion. 2011, 52 people were killed during an arson attack caused by members of the drug cartel Los Zetas. 2012, Voyager 1 spacecraft enters interstellar space, becoming the first man-made object to do so that we know of. 2017, Hurricane Harvey makes landfall in Texas as a powerful Category 4 hurricane. Strongest hurricane to make landfall in the U.S. since 2004. And in 2017, conflict in Rakhine State. 170 people were killed and at least 26 separate attacks carried out by the Iraqan Rohingya Salvation Army leading to the governments of Myanmar and Malaysia designating the group as a terrorist organization. You know, it's all well and good to designate somebody as this, that, or the other, but you got to do something about it. And nine times out of ten, you'll find that uh, they have friends. As it was said to me in court the other day by one of the attorneys for the other side, we have friends, as if I'm supposed to shake in my boots. You know, I'm going to do a show about this particular case after we finish it, assuming we ever do. It's been going on eight years. And even when I prove fraud, as I have on more than one occasion, I get to hear a lecture about how wonderful they are. They're just the greatest people that ever lived. They take our inspectors out to lunch every day. You don't. So that's supposed to carry weight. And apparently it does. Well, we've been talking about some of the world's scariest places. And in Vietnam, there's Ho Thuy Tien, also known as the Dragon's Lair. You know, nobody comes to Ho Thuy Tien by accident. The abandoned water park outside the city in the way in central Vietnam is not in any guidebook. It's not on any map. For a long time it was a well-kept secret among backpackers in Southeast Asia. Uh, they shared directions, scrawled on napkins or by word of mouth. But even if you know how to get there, the roads are rough. The locals can correct your course. Um, but few of them will. So if you get lost, you're screwed. Now, the history of Ho Tui Thin, uh, the name actually means Daffodil Lake, is something of a mystery as well. Opened in 2004 at a reported cost of $3 million, it struggled financially until it was abandoned to the jungle a few years later. And now the site centerpiece, an enormous dragon, it sits on top of a moldering aquarium that rises from the lake. Foliage is overtaking the algae-covered water slides, under which crocodiles were left behind and locked up in cages. They were kept alive only because the locals came in and fed them chickens. As a destination for urban explorers, uh, Otuith Inn is allegedly more popular now than it was when it was open. You can explore empty passageways and climb into the Dragon's Maw to gaze out over the lake through uh, graffiti-covered fangs. One traveler said my adrenaline was flowing the whole time. Huffington Post, or Huff Post as it's called, 
helped put the site on the map. In 2016, they did a story about it. In the end, a visit to Hothui Thin can feel sad as well as scary. Although the crocodiles were reportedly saved by animal activists who moved them to a wildlife park in uh, northern Vietnam. The, uh, the dragon is very ornate, so I understand. Be interesting to check it out. We have another place closer to home for those of us in the States, and I know I'm heard around the world. Um, <clears throat> there was a song and a TV show about Route 66, and there's a lot of ruins along Route 66. Glen Road, Texas, New Mexico. Um, it was created in 1926, eventually turned Glen Row into a tourist way station and included the Longhorn Motel, which unfortunately has fallen into ruin now. For 60 years or more, Route 66, the iconic two-lane highway that cut across the country from Chicago to Los Angeles, was the path for westward promise for such travelers as uh, on-the-road author Jack uh, Kerouac and uh, the Okies fleeing the Dust Bowl in the 1930s. But when increased auto traffic led to the creation of Interstate 40, the towns that had flourished along uh, Route 66 fell into decline, among them Glenrow which had straddled the Texas-New Mexico border for almost 80 years. The town had its humble beginnings in 1905, when uh, farmers began settling in the area's uh, high plains. A year later, the Chicago, Rock Island, and Gulf Railway line established a local whistle stop that led to the building of a post office, a hotel, a grocery store, gas station, cafes, and with the official creation of Route 66 in 1926, tourist welcome station was opened up, offering water for overheated radiators, even as the town itself became a neon oasis for tired travelers. Seventeen of Glenrow's old buildings still stand today, including the State Line Bar, an art modern uh, style uh, Texas filling station, the Little Juarez Cafe, so called First Last Motel. And if you wander down any of Glenrow's dusty streets, you find the remains of Route 66 along the, the main street, still following the tracks of the forgotten railway uh, that fueled the once thriving western outpost. Been a lot of interesting stories uh, take place along Route 66. Well, let's go to Seattle. <clears throat> You know, beneath Seattle, there is a subterranean city. And after it was ravaged by fire in 1889, a new city was built over the original settlement, which was later forgotten by all but a, a few um, urban explorers. Now, just after 2.15 in the afternoon, June 6, 1889, a cabinet maker in the Seattle woodworking shop was heating glue on a gasoline fire when it spilled ignited the turpentine-soaked wood chips that covered the floor. Raging for more than 12 hours, the, the blaze leveled the city's wooden buildings. And in the inferno's aftermath, residents rebuilt with brick on top of the ruins of the wooden city. 
streets in a new settlement were regraded two stories above the original, and the subterranean space became known as the Seattle Underground. Now, for a while, people continued using the old ground floors, which were now basements lit by skylights. Bathhouses where lumberjacks and prospectors could clean up were typical underground businesses, according to a guide for Beneath the Streets, which conducts tours of the area. Outcast Chinese immigrants likely frequented underground gambling parlors, opium dens, and whorehouses, all of which were also common above ground. In fact, not lost on the entrepreneurial German immigrant named uh, Friedrich Trump, grandfather of Donald Trump, who leased a uh, restaurant that was also a brothel. In 1907, a threat of bubonic plague led officials to condemn the area, and over time, the existence of the Seattle Underground became nothing but a legend. Until 1954, when Bill Spidell rediscovered the area while researching the city's past and began conducting underground tours. Unfortunately, though, the history of this underground area will always remain incomplete. Everybody knows there's more to the story, but sometimes the world moves too fast. There's an underground El Paso that I've been in and wandered around, but uh, I did ghost tours here for 20 years until the latecomers bought my books and started telling my stories as if they were theirs. So I finally, after 20 years, just gave it up. And, in fact, at one point, one individual even claimed that he was the one that wrote the books. Well, let's talk about the burning mine in Centralia, Pennsylvania. Well, I'm looking back. It seemed like a good idea at the time. Just before Memorial Day in 1962, firefighters in the coal mining town of Centralia, Pennsylvania, set fire to a landfill without knowing it rested on top of an old strip mining pit. Left to burn, the fire spread into abandoned underground mines and eventually beneath the town itself. Through a monumental series of blunders and had adequate attention over the years, it got to the size uh, underground where it basically destroyed the town of Centralia and everybody had to move. That's according to David Dedock in the book Fire Underground. By 1983, fissures in the ground were belching out lethal levels of carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide, spurring a relocation program that eventually left the town a maze of cracked streets, smoldering earth, abandoned houses, and an inspiration for the video game Silent Hill. Signs now warned visitors of danger from uh, asphyxiation and sinkholes, but that hadn't kept a handful of residents from remaining. 2022, the Centralia had a population of 14. A riot is considered two people. Nobody expects the fire to end anytime soon, but experts say the fuel will eventually run out. Oh, in about 250 years or so. Then we've got Hashima Island in Japan where there was a forgotten fortress known as Midori Nashishima, which translates as Island Without Green. Hashima is a 16-acre landmass off Japan's Nagasaki coast. It's now an abandoned ruin. It was, for a time, the most densely populated area in the world, thanks to the discovery of subterranean coal beds in 1810. Mitsubishi Corporation turned it into a mining operation in the 
built a network of concrete structures that housed up to 5,250 workers, giving the site a forbidding fortress-like appearance and leading to yet another nickname, Gunkajimi, or Battleship Island. By 1941, Hashima was producing 400,000 tons of coal a year. But when the fuel finally ran out in 1974, the island was abandoned to the typhoons in the surrounding area. In 2009, after some of its structures were reinforced, Hashima reported as a, or reopened as a tourist destination. Six years later, it became a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Controversial designation since so many of the miners on the island have been Korean laborers forced to work during Japan's colonial rule. During World War II, they were joined by the captive Chinese. One expert told CNN, most common stories I heard was that they were enormously hungry. Meals were miserable, and when they couldn't go to work, they were tortured, punched, and kicked. More common deprivations were veiled as well. There were no bushes, no flowers. We didn't even know what the cherry blossom was, according to one former resident. We told the seasons from one another by listening to the wind or looking at the color of the ocean in the sky. Over time, of course, nature had its way. The forlorn ruins of the island without green are now overrun with vegetation. Got a little bit of green showing there. Well, you know, there's a number of locations well, there are many stories, far too many for me to go into. And it would seem that not everyone or everything rests in peace. For example, London's Highgate Cemetery, opened in 19, 1839. Once the city's most fashionable burial ground, but was pillaged by vandals in the 1970s and supposedly became home to Satanists. The specter woman in white and predatory king vampire the undead. Oh, there are so many stories. It's just unbelievable. You know, right now, one location in the news is uh, Hollywood. And with the actor strike, there are many, many stories being told. About various celebrities. And I'm going to talk about some of the uh, Hollywood celebrity deaths. Because they're far more than we're commonly aware of. Let's talk about Gwilly Andre. Born February 24, 1908. Died February 5, 1959. And as a model, Danish-born Gwilly Andre was so alluring she became tops in the New York fashion industry. David Selznick, the head of RKO Pictures, brought America's most beautiful model to Hollywood where she was cast immediately opposite studio star Richard Dix in Roar of the Dragon in 1932. But in that film, as well as her next feature, Secrets of the French Police, also in 1932, she proved to be a physically striking but dramatically wooden mannequin. By the time of her Final movie, The Falcon's Brother, in 1942. She was cast in a very supporting role. As uh, they would say about her today, the lights are on, but nobody was home. But the late 50s, her acting career was all but a memory, as were her two marriages. Her second husband gained custody of their only child. February 5, 1959, a fire swept her 
apartment on the Oceanfront Walk in Venice, California, and she was burned to death. Her landlady admitted that uh, she had been a heavy drinker, adding she found peace at last, something she never knew on this earth. Found in the ruins of the actress's apartment were several empty whiskey bottles plus a box of old magazines in which she'd been featured as the cover girl. Um, some things you just don't forget. And then somebody who is a uh, better-known individual was Jack Cassidy. Father of David and Sean Cassidy. Actually born John Edward Joseph Cassidy. Born March 5th, 1927. Died December 12th, 1976. Now some... Smooth performers like Jack Cassidy, so multi-talented, they continually work in all mediums. His career end wasn't induced by professional burnout. Rather, he burned to death tragically in a, an apartment fire. Grew up in the Richmond Hill area of Queens, New York. He was the youngest of five children in an Irish-American household where the father was a railroad engineer. As a child, he thought about becoming a priest but changed his mind by the age of 11. The guidance of an uncle, entertainer Ben Dora, he decided on a show business career. Braid uh, 16, he had a chorus job in Ethel Merman's musical Something for the Boys in 1943. When that cut closed, he took odd jobs, bellhop, chauffeur, to fill in between Broadway chorus work. 1948, he had a part, a uh, small part in Small Wonder, and was with uh, Bobby Van in Alive and Kicking in 1950. Well, by... At this point, he had married TV actress Ethel Evelyn Ward, and her son David was born in 1951. He enjoyed solid success in the musical Wish You Were Here in 1952 and went dramatic in Sandhog in 1954. Of course, by that point in time, he and Evelyn were divorced. Well, long at odds with his pretty boy image and hating being branded a lightweight actor who got by on his wit and his sharp wardrobe, he never gave that... He had grave doubts, well, one more time, doubts about his talent. However, at the same time, he exercised some of his demons by uh, writing an autobiography, his life book, Another Positive Jump. Met Shirley Jones, who had re-met Shirley Jones, who had co-starred with him in 1956 European tour of Oklahoma. And they married that same year and performed together in the Beggar's uh, Opera and later in the Supper Club tour. 1959, the first of their three sons, Sean, was born, followed by Patrick in 1962 and Ryan in 1966. In 1970, debonair Jack Cassidy won an Emmy for playing the defense counsel in TV's The Andersonville Trial, earned a Tony for being the dashing Hungarian fop, Mr. Caudalie, in the musical She Loves Me in 1963. He seemed to turn up everywhere, in magazines and on TV quiz shows, back on Broadway with Carol Burnett and Fade Out, Fade In in 1964, where Shirley and Maggie Flynn in 68, and in the movies, he did the Chapman Report in 62, FBI Code 98 in 64, Bunny O'Hare in 71. On TV, he co-starred in the sitcom He and She in 1967. In England, he and Shirley were paired for the TV series Date with Shirley and Jack. As their careers and lives increasingly diverged, he and Shirley parted in 1974, and their divorce was finalized in 1975. Uh, 1977, she married uh, actor-promoter Marty Ingalls. In the mid-'70s, Jack's screen career took a downward turn. 
as the homosexual villain in Clint Eastwood's The Higher Section in 75, uh, as an age John Barrymore in uh, W.C. Feels Me in 76. Also in 76, it was on Broadway with Janet Leigh in the comedy mystery Murder Among Friends, playing his typecast specialty, the arrogant ladies' man. And then on December 12, 1976, it all ended in a blaze of terror in his West Hollywood penthouse apartment at 1221 North Kings Road. As the arson squad later determined, Cassidy had hosted a party on Saturday night, December 11th, 1976. Several cigarette butts were thrown over the floor and a fire started by a still-lit cigarette left carelessly alone or by a couch. Meanwhile, Cassidy apparently had fallen asleep on the couch, and when the burst, uh, fire flames burst out, he was overwhelmed by the heat and the smoke. Five Alarm Inferno caused the evacuation of a hundred tenants in that four-story building because his car was missing, and which was later found to have been barred by a friend. It wasn't immediately known if the badly churned body in the living room was out of Cassidy or not. It was hoped he had driven to Palm Springs as originally planned, and maybe some, the victim was somebody else, but... Uh, Corpse was later identified as Jack's through dental records and personal jewelry. Finest tribute to Jack came from his ex-wife, Shirley. She said he was an extraordinary man with an uncanny sense of humor and a gifted talent. He's one of a kind, and the world suffers a great loss when he was taken from it so soon. Ironically, Jack left none of his $150,000 estate to Shirley Jones, Evelyn Ward, or David Cassidy. His will left everything to certain friends and relatives, as well as the Actors' Equity Fund and the Motion Picture uh, Country House. His last movie, The Private Files of J. Edgar Hoover, in which he played writer Damien Runyon, went uh, unreleased until 1978. Well, the next one we're going to talk about was a uh, fairly well-known name, Jeff Chandler. His real name, of course, was Ira uh, Grissel. He was uh, born December 15, 1918, died January 17, 1961. Ruggedly handsome, six foot four, Jeff Chandler was only 42 years old when he died. This square-jawed uh, individual with uh, prematurely gray, curly hair was the picture of health until he suffered a slip disc while making Merle's Marauders in 1961. It was a World War II combat uh, movie. Simple corrective surgery was performed at uh, Culver City, California Hospital. And the patient should have been up and around at no time, but due to medical misadventure, he died. This future actor was born in Ira Grissel in Brooklyn, where he attended Erasmus Hall High School. Convinced he wanted a career in the creative arts, he took art courses and Enrolled in the Fagan School of Dramatic Art in New York City. Landed a job with a Long Island uh, stock company, first as a stagehand and then as an actor. 1941, he and a friend began a little theater company in Eglin, Illinois. Or, I'm sorry, Elgin, Illinois. But after Pearl Harbor brought the U.S. into World War II, he joined the Army, where he was stationed mostly in the Aleutians. As of December 6, 1945, he was a civilian and headed toward Los Angeles. While doing a radio job, he was discovered by Dick Powell and given a small role in Powell's Johnny O'Clock in 1947. But now he is known as Jeff Chandler and spent the next two years on radio. Mr. Dana, 
Michael uh, Shane, detective, and has Eve Arden's love interest on Iron Miss Brooks. Universal Pictures cast him as an Israeli leader in Sword in a Desert in 1949. And his masculine good looks registered with moviegoers. Joined the studio's roster of contract young leading men, which included Tony Curtis and Rock Hudson. With his high cheekbones, he was cast in the first of several Indian roles in Broken Arrow in 1950, starring Jimmy Stewart, and his Chandler was Oscar-nominated. As a universal contract player, he careened through a stack of action pictures, sometimes as an athlete like Iron Man in 51, a swashbuckler, Yankee Buccaneer in 52, or as a serviceman in Away All Boats in 1956. And along the way, he developed a real screen magnetism and played opposite several smoldering leading ladies, such as Jane Russell in Foxfire in 55, Gene Crane in The Tattered Dress in 58, and Susan Hayward in Thunder in the Sun in 1959. Always ambitious, he was constantly proving himself. Having shown he could play a range of roles on screen, he signed a recording contract in 1954 with Decca Records, did several singles as well as an album. May of 1957, he appeared at the Riviera Hotel in Las Vegas as a singer. In addition, he also played the violin and wrote music, so he started his own music publishing company. And as many stars in the 50s did, he formed his own production company to produce movies such as Drango in 1957. Married actress Marjorie Hushell in 1946, and they had two daughters, Jamie and Dana. Unfortunately, the couple split in 1954, but they reconciled. In late 1957, Jeff, an aquatic movie star, Esther Williams, who herself recently divorced, became very good friends and together co-starred uh, co in Raw Wind and Eden in 1958. They saved most of their passion for off-screen. In 1959, Marjorie Hushell sued Chandler for divorce. Ironically, by 1960, when the decree became final, Jeff and Esther Williams had drifted apart. He continued to turn out movies, though. The Plunderers in 60 returned to Peyton Place in 61. Then he went on location to the Philippines for Merrill's Marauders in 1961. When he returned to Los Angeles, he underwent surgery May 13th for the slip disc. The operation was uncomplicated, but following it, he suffered internal hemorrhages and infection. During an emergency follow-up operation that lasted 72 hours to repair a ruptured artery, he was given 55 pints of blood. He survived that and a further surgery, but uh, another hemorrhage and more infection weakened him, and he took a turn for the worse on Friday, June 16th, and died the next day of a generalized blood infection, further complicated by uh, pneumonia. This needless tragedy, of course, was the talk of Hollywood. After funeral services on June 19, 1961, at Temple Isaiah in Los Angeles, his body was taken to Hillside Memorial Park for private internment. Among the pallbearers were Jeff's baseball buddies, Hobby Landreth and Bill Rigney, as well as actor Tony Curtis. On behalf of their children, his ex-wife brought uh, legal action against the medical center where he was uh, treated. Eventually, an out-of-court settlement was reached. With untimely passing, Hollywood lost three major macho leading men in the course of a few short months. Clark Gable, November 16, 1960, Gary Cooper, May 13, 1961, and Jeff Chandler. Well, it wasn't just male actors who were dying uh, in surprising fashion. Let's talk about Linda Darnell. Real name, Monette Eloise Darnell. 
born October 16, 1923, died April 10, 1965. If anyone ever had a strange premonition of her death, it was Linda Darnell, the beautiful star forever ambered, which uh, showed in 1947, had a lifelong fear of fire. While shooting Anne and the King of Siam in 1946, her role called for her to be burned at the stake. The scene terrified her, but it was required, and while filming it, she was slightly injured. Later, she told the press, never again. Next time, I prefer being stabbed or shot. At least that kind of dying is painless. Nineteen years later, in real life, she burned to death in a horrible, uh, fiery furnace. Well... The um, Maggie Pearl Brown had grown up in Clifton, Tennessee, always dreaming of becoming an actress. And unfortunately, like so many, she had to abandon those plans for the reality of marriage. She had two children by her first husband before they divorced. In 1915, a 20-year-old woman next married uh, Dallas, Texas postal worker Royal Darnell. And in the uh, next 14 years, the couple had four children. Their second one, Lynetta Eloise Darnell was born October 16, 1923. Later, studio uh, press releases would push her birth year to 1921 to make the teenager appear older. Frustrated Pearl soon fixated her show business dreams on Lynetta. And by age 11, the pretty girl had physically matured enough to pass for much older and got department store modeling jobs. Future actors would remember, I was going to be a movie star and Mom was going to bust in the attempt. Well, when her daughter was 14, a 20th Century Fox talent scout passed through Dallas and Pearl badgered him in the, with photos of Manetta. He brushed the woman off, but she followed into Hollywood with Manetta in tow. Well, the studio felt Manetta was too young and sent mother and daughter packing. Later on, Pearl engineered Manetta's entry into a talent contest and soon they were back in Los Angeles. But uh, RKO let the young girl sit out the option period sent her back to Texas again. Later on, Fox brought uh, Pearl Manetta to Hollywood and signed her to a $750 contract, renaming the starlet Linda Darnell. And she simply radiated fresh beauty in Elsa Maxwell's Hotel for Women in 1939 and was soon promoted by studio head Daryl Zanuck into star roles. As Hollywood's new Cinderella girl, she was uh, teamed with uh, matinee idol Tyrone Power. Power in uh, several features, including The Mark of Zorro in 1940 and Blood and Sand in 1941. Get away from her manipulative mother, she moved into her own apartment, but uh, independence was short-lived. Having long depended on the advice and kindness of veteran uh, cinematographer uh, Pivotal Marley, she uh, married him in April 1942 in Las Vegas. He was 41 and she was 19. Well, because she played so many virginal heroines on screen, she was in a career rut. So Fox devised a fresh approach for the new Linda Darnell. As the smoldering vixen in Summer Storm, she made people take note with her new t- specialty. She was cast as a temptress, temptress in the uh, period thriller Hangover Square in 1945, when she strangled her body's burned. Well, soon she won the role of her career. When the studio shut down filming of Forever Amber based on the racy bestseller by Kathleen Windsor about uh, Restoration England, Petty Cummins was dropped from the lead and Linda was her replacement. 
Even in the diluted screen version, the blue-eyed Linda, excuse me, the blonde-dyed Linda is impressive as the sexy hussy. A scene in this spectacular spectacle called for Linda to be involved in the Great London Fire. And the frightened actress, uh, fearing the all-too-real flames, had to be yanked onto the soundstage to perform. Well, when Forever Amber proved not to be a huge hit, her career stalled. Meanwhile, she and Marley adopted a daughter nicknamed Lola. Her career took an upturn when she was cast opposite Rex Harrison in Unfaithful Years in 48, and then as the mercenary gal in a letter to three wives in 48. 51, she and Marley divorced, and the next year her Fox contract expired. Well, from there, she went to Italy for two movies and then was uh, married to Brewery President Philip uh, Liebman for two years, 1954 and 55. Linda, who was becoming a heavy drinker, tried uh, picture-making again, but was forced to accept a Western. A bid for Broadway uh, stardom uh, ended uh, Harbor Lights in 1956, closed after four performances. 1950, March of 57, she married airline pilot uh, Merle Robertson. Her drinking problem made Linda, now approaching 40, no longer a uh, swelt um, sex pot, somewhat problematic on the set. After making Zero Hour in 1957, she didn't get another film offer until Black Spurs in 65. That was a low-budget western full of has-beens. Desperation, she did stage work, nightclub act, and TV. November 23, 1963, she and uh, Merle Robinson divorced. Well, in March of 65, after touring in Janus, she visited her friend and former secretary, Jean Curtis, in Glenview, Illinois, near Chicago. Early in the morning on April 9th, Linda suggested to Jean and her 16-year-old daughter, Patricia, that they stay up watch one of Linda's old pictures, Stardust, she made in 1940. She said, let's have some laughs. After the movie ended, about 2.30 in the morning, three went upstairs to bed. About 3.30 in the morning, a uh, still smoldering cigarette ignited in the downstairs sofa. Soon the living room was uh, burning. Smoke and heat woke the three men upstairs. Jean and Patricia managed to escape. Pat jumped from the second floor window, and Jean went out one of the bathroom window ledge, where a fireman later rescued her. But Linda, afraid of jumping, tried to make it down the stairs and out the front door. She was caught by flames in the living room. Neighbor tried to smash through a downstairs window to rescue her, but the flames were too intense. When the firemen broke in, they found Darnell unconscious behind the sofa. Had second, third degree burns over 80% of her upper body. She was taken to Skokie Valley Community Hospital where she underwent four hours of surgery. The uh, prognosis was bad, and later that day, uh, she was moved to Cook County Hospital's burn treatment center. Tracheotomies performed to help her breathing. Her 16-year-old daughter flew in from California to be at her dying mother's bedside. They spent a half hour today where Linda was barely together, where Linda was barely conscious. However, in her distorted voice from tracheotomy, she kept insisting, "Who says I'm going to die? I'm not going to die." And then she said, "I love you, baby." And 3:25 p.m., she died. The body was cremated, which was something great to do to somebody who feared fire. And a private service was held at the Glenview Community Church, April 11th, with another memorial service conducted in Burbank, California, May 8th. She wanted her ashes to be scattered over the ranch of friends who lived in New Mexico. That never happened, though, and her remains are stored in the administrative office of a Chicago cemetery for over 10 years. 
September 1975, when Linda's daughter was married and living with her family in New London, Pennsylvania, she arranged for Linda's ashes to be shipped to her husband's family plot at Union Hill Cemetery in Connecticut Square. Well, Linda Darnell, whose life was a perfect example of the shattered American dream, was finally laid to rest. And then one of the most famous names in Hollywood, James Dean, born February 6, 1931, died September 30, 1955. Interestingly enough, he's being brought back uh, as a result of AI. Few Hollywood performers have made such a charismatic impact on the world as did boyishly handsome nonconformist James Dean. The impact is still a little more impressive because he's only starred in three movies during his brief uh, meteoric career. Both life and death, he became the symbolic rebel of his era, and amazingly, his reputation is still legendary in today's generation. Like a few chosen others, such as Elvis and Marilyn Monroe, Dean remains in them a, uh, as popular in death as he was in his life. Alcon refuses to fade. He was born James Byron Dean, February 8, 1931, in Marion, Indiana. Son of Quaker dental technician Linton Dean and his Methodist mother, Mildred Wilson Dean. When he was nine, his mother died. He went to live with his aunt, Hortense Wilson, and her husband, Marcus, at nearby Fairmount. High school, class of 49, don't you know? His drama teacher, Adeline Nile coaxed him into entering a public speaking contest and ended up winning the state's trophy. His father urged him to study law, and he enrolled first at Santa Monica City College and then transferred to UCLA, where he majored in drama before quitting. His roommate, young actor William Bass, got him an extras job on a TV commercial and then worked as an NBC network page. Later, he was a movie extra in 1951 movies like uh, Fixed Bayonets and Sailor Beware and 1951, uh, has anybody seen my gal? At the suggestion of actor James Whitmore, Dean moved to New York in the fall of 51 to find himself. We always have to find ourselves. Always a loner became more so in Manhattan. And that, but he knew how to seize an opportunity and, through friends, auditioned for See the Jaguar in 1952, in which he made his Broadway debut. Between that flop and his next Broadway assignment, The Immortalist, in 1954, in which he was uh, the corrupt Arab houseboy, he did a great deal of live TV. For The Immortalist, he received the Theatre World Award as the most promising newcomer of the year. And while he was on the East Coast, he studied at the Actors Studio, where director Elia Cousin hired him for his upcoming movie, East of Eden, in 1955. As Raymond Massey's uh, tormented son, Jimmy struck a chord with teenage filmgoers everywhere and immediately became their new hero. While shooting East of Eden, for which he was Oscar-nominated, he fell in love with young Italian import uh, Pierre Angeli, then a rising MGM star. Unfortunately, she was as moody and mercurial as he was, and she broke off their engagement. In November 1954, she married singer Vic Damone. And when she did, he sat brooding in his car across the street from the church. After that, the reportedly bisexual Dean dated a host of movie starlets but became even more obsessive about acting. Um, he once made the comment, acting is the most logical way for people's neurosis to express themselves. Also an avid gun collector, motorcyclist, and liked to snap photographs with his camera, especially of himself, of course. Do we have an ego? Of course not. Nicholas Ray, he directed Dean and Natalie Wood in the juvenile delinquency study, Rebel Without a Cause in 55, said of the Fair-haired, brooding Dean, uh, 
He had a trademark uh, mumble. And uh, Ray said, uh, my feelings were he could have been, uh, he could have surpassed any actor alive. With the movie Rebel, he became a major Hollywood star. He was the new voice for the teenage generation and earlier worshipped the Merlin, the wild one, Brando. Director George Stevens hired Dean for the big-budgeted Texas epic Giant in 1956, in which uh, his character of uh, Jed Rink ages from the improvised farmhand to the mega-millionaire middle-aged oil man. And always a daredevil, his pride and joy was his silver Porsche spider, which he nicknamed Little Bastard. A week after completing Giant, he was out for a spin, driving at 86 miles per hour, and when it... Uh, 5.59 p.m. on September 30th, 1955, his car collided with another vehicle at the intersection of Roads 41 and 466 near Paso Robles, California. His passenger, Ford uh, uh, Porsche factory mechanic, uh, Ralph Woodridge, uh, suffered a broken leg and head injuries, and the driver, David Turnipseed, of the other car was only injured slightly. In the crash, Dean's head was nearly severed from his body. Later, a policeman reported that a few hours early in Bakersfield, he had issued a speeding ticket to Dean uh, and cautioned him to slow down. Dean had been heading to a sports car rally in Salinas, California. Re reputedly, uh, Jimmy Dean's last words to Ralph Winnison before the fatal car crashes, he's got to see us. Well, Dean was buried October 8, 1955 at Park Cemetery in Fairmount, Indiana. The original tombstone, as well as a later bust of Dean on a nearby pillar, were stolen, and the grave marker had to be replaced. And his death touched off a wave of sorrow from fans, unequal since Rudolph Valentino died decades before. Both Rebel Without a Cause and Giant were released posthumously, and for the latter picture, Jimmy was again Oscar-nominated. Well, for a number of years, rumors circulated James Dean had not died in a crash, but was so badly disfigured he remained in hiding. He became a cult figure whose popularity seems undiminished by the passing years. And there are many James Dean fan clubs worldwide. Admirers and tourists make pilgrimages to his hometown and cemetery on the anniversary of his death for the three-day annual celebration sponsored by Fairmont. There's a finely crafted bust um, of Dean at the north side of Griffith Observatory in Los Angeles where part of Rebel Without a Cause was shot. At Princeton University, there's a life mask of the late actor in the collection of features likenesses of Beethoven and Thackeray and Keats and other creative giants. Over the years, there's been a steady flow of movie documentaries released and biographies published eulogizing the enigmatic dead idol. On one occasion, Ann Doran, who had played Dean's mother in Rebel Without the Cause, was asked about the late movie star. And she made the observation he was kind of in a limbo. He had great doubts about himself, where he was going. He was that lost. It was this telltale vulnerability, plus his extraordinary ability to communicate with his audience, that uh, made Dean such an enduring pop figure. And on that note, we come to the end of today's show. We'll be back tomorrow on uh, Monday. We'll talk about more deaths in Hollywood. Until then, this is Ken Hutton for the Ken Hutton Show, saying have a truly great evening.